Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. People who have been trained for many years assume that an Asian or African-American female cannot tolerate VBAC as well as a white woman would. They didn't even apply any kind of calculations. They just assumed, and that training was false. So now we're going around to bring back the knowledge to say, everyone's equal. Here's how we calculate it correctly for all women. Welcome to Town Hall, a show hosted by leaders on the front lines with interviews of people making things happen in healthcare with technology. My name is Bill Russell the creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. We want to thank our show partners, Meditech and Transparent, for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. Welcome to This Week in Health. My name is Brett Oliver. I'm the CMIO for Baptist Health in Kentucky and Indiana. And I'm very excited today to have a friend and colleague, Dr. Al Villarin, who is the CMIO for New Vance Health. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into the topic today. We're going to talk a little bit about health equity. And we were talking before we started taping that Al's been able to do some things very concretely in that space that I'm anxious for him to share. But before we get to that, Al, if you just take a second, just give the folks a brief background and kind of where you come from and how you got into that informatics space over time. Thank you. It's probably all started as an emergency physician, emergency board certified emergency physician from a while back, the U.S. military, a retired major in the reserves. Back then, it was a time of learning technology. How does technology really impact us in patient care? Can we use computers? Can we use x-ray equipment? Can we digitize images? And can we send those images someplace else? So I was assigned one of the scientific groups and we were able to really test it out in the field. And that got me very interested in how we can expand this. This is 1998, 99. How can we expand this to our hospital-based practices? And I became the guy with the computer and the thought about how we want to innovate utilizing computers and healthcare. Very early, a lot of people were thinking about the same thing, but we didn't have a coalescing understanding of where we would go with this. So my interest started there and it just grew from that application into my civilian practice and then became director of medical informatics at the emergency department where I worked at Einstein in Philadelphia. And the rest is history. Once we started looking at what a CMIO does and create a position and other CMIOs joined the conversation and the whole groundswell around informatics grew out of our interest clinicians to bring better technology to the bedside. Crazy that you've been thinking about this stuff since 98, 99. Wow. So specifically about health equity, what drew you either individually or as your organization's attention to that issue? There were three formidable factors involved with this. First, as a Hispanic male in medicine, how is our culture or other cultures being influenced by technology and the way we practice medicine? Is it different because a clinician sees you as a race-based patient versus as a patient that has the same pathophysiology and function and clinical care needs as anyone else, regardless of who you are, how you feel you are, and color of skin. 
The second one is my son who is in medical school now in Pennsylvania and UPenn. He is of the LGBT community and learning healthcare differently than we learned when we were in medical school. So I'm hearing a lot of those interesting aspects of how they're training, how they're understanding healthcare, how they're expanding health equity around the practice of medicine for embracement of all clinicians and on all our patients, actually. And the third is reading several papers around how health equity is being addressed by changes in the EMR. And that fostered an interest by another colleague of mine, who is the medical director for health equity, to look into clinical measures within the EMR itself, specifically around how we do calculations, what tools we use, et cetera. Because a lot of those tools were designed in the ways of the 1940s, 1950s, when health equity wasn't even a thing. It was like calculations were different because we're applying it to an African-American male. Females who are African-American cannot have VBAC procedures because they're higher risk. Well, where does that come from? And yeah. tracing that understanding found there was no evidence-based medicine whatsoever to elicit that there's a difference between those practices. Yeah. So we went into our EMR and found eight areas that we want to remove the tools and replace them with non-biased, non-racial tools themselves. One of them was pulmonary function studies. Another one was the EGFR. Another one is the VBAC calculator. So we've gone around and done this and other doing more research. A lot of different institutes have done this, but we want to make sure that we give the best care for our patients here and then bring out the experiences we have for to share with other clinical entities outside. Well, yeah. So about that project that you did, why would it matter to explain maybe to someone who's watching this that's more IT and not clinical, why does it matter if the glomerular filtration rate, the kidney function, essentially, let's say, for an African-American male is going to be measured differently? than a Caucasian? Great question. And, and we have to go explain to our African-American patients that same explanation because prior to the changes in our GFR, we were not providing the same care of downstream diagnosis and processes as they would a white male, let's say. So because the calculation was different or was more acceptable to have a different GFR, Therefore, we weren't allowing them the consults later on to kidney evaluation, getting them treated earlier like we do with someone else because the numbers were different. We we're categorizing them differently, but there was no need to do so. So now that everyone's categorized together, everyone gets the same equitable access to those consults for improving their renal function before it goes down to dialysis. So it would actually, an African-American male, for instance, would be allowed to have a lower kidney function, glomerular filtration rate, and, and still be considered normal. So, Correct. Yeah. Correct. Or not needing the care that we want to provide someone else with, with the same number. Exactly. Well, what other things did you find out in that project that you guys did? You talked about the VBAC procedure. You want to explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So the one of the calculators that were previously used was a calculator that brought in a an index for Asian, African-American, non-white women, which unproportionately push the higher risk into a category that they cannot be offered VBAC or they wouldn't be offered VBAC. But in alliance with this, it was also training around that too. So we've people who've been trained for many years assume that an Asian or African-American female cannot tolerate VBAC as well as a white woman would. And therefore don't even apply any kind of calculations. They just assumed and that training was false. So now we're going around to fix the training and going around to fix the calculator and bring back the knowledge to say everyone's equal, 
Here's how we calculate it correctly for all women. If you have yet to hear, we are doing webinars differently. We got your feedback. You wanted us to focus on community generated topics, topics that were relevant to you in your role. We have gone out and gotten the best contributors that we possibly can. They are not product focused. They are only available live and we try to have them at a consistent time the first Thursday of every month with some exceptions. And the next <laughs> March happens to be that exception. March 2nd, I'm on vacation. So March 9th is going to be our next webinar, March 9th at one o'clock Eastern time. And we're going to do a leadership series on the changing nature of work. We're going to talk about a couple of things. One is the remote distribution of health IT staff and what we have to do from a management standpoint in that regard. We're also going to talk about the lack of staff specifically in the clinical areas and technicians and whatnot, and what the role health care and technology in particular is going to play with regard to that. Love to have you sign up. Our first two webinars we've done this year have been fantastic. Over 200 people signing up for each one of them. And we expect just as many for this one. This is a great conversation and great panelists. We have Trisha Julian, Baptist Health System out of Kentucky, Will Weeder, Peace Health, and Andy Crowder with Atrium Health are going to join us for this discussion. And I've talked to each of them about this topic and I love their insights and look forward to sharing them with you. If you wanna sign up, hit our website, top right-hand corner. We always have the next webinar listed. Just go ahead and sign up, put your question in there and we'll incorporate it into the discussion. Look forward to seeing you then. What a great point you bring up in terms of there's the technical correction of a formula, right? And that just recognizing that is a big deal, but the decades literally of reinforced behavior and operational procedures that you don't even use the technology because you assume something and that there's more to it than just fixing the IT part, which is seems like that's always the case regardless of the topic. We can fix that T part, but that education that was trained through an attending today who was a resident back in 1970 is still there and being passed on to the next generation of residents. We're trying to break that cycle and make it equal for all patients to receive the care that they deserve. It's crazy to me how particularly the GFR piece is so ingrained. There was no questioning. You just assumed that it was based on evidence and research and all that. It, it, it's astounding to me, quite frankly. Well, that, that brings out the importance of us, our medical informatics, clinical informaticists, who need to address these issues from an EMR perspective, from a workflow perspective, from a data perspective, to be accurate around the evidence and then deliver not just the EMR improvements, but also the educational improvements behind that to support our findings. Yeah, very rarely do you and I lead a project or have involvement in a project where there's not a significant operational slash educational piece. It's why in my organization, the training and support team report up through me because we feel like it's that important. The same here. I, I totally agree. And in educating our clinicians, the uptake, the adoption has been tremendous. There really has been very little question resistance because they can see it. The evidence shows that I can take care of my patients better if we use the right calculators within our processes. Yeah, that's a question that I hadn't asked you before. It sounds like there wasn't any, but did you get some pushback? Like, I mean, I, I think it'd be hard if you're like, well, show me the studies and we'll sit down and compare them. <laughs> but here's the ones we found that compare different races and kidney function or vaginal birth after cesarean or what have you. So the institutional large healthcare centers like we are really understand that agile progression to innovative evidence-based practice is the norm. We expect that to happen. We improve quality, improve outcomes. It is the primary care, the non-employed clinical groups that sometimes 
want to stay where they are and practice the same way. And they feed our network. So we have to help them understand where we want them to be and help our patients as a continuum, as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So you've just got to get them to read the studies. If anything else. True. Very true. <laughs> what's along these lines, what's next for you guys? I'm sure you're already planning other moves here. We are actually aligning food as a medicine as part of our practice. So now in the EMR, we can do a quick two or three question assay on an admission for a patient or a new patient coming in and assess their need for food as part of a medicine, because you can't be healthy if you're not nourished. So treating someone for hypertension is only as good as the health that they can deliver by non-medical practices, such as healthy eating, healthy diets, et cetera. So we have a questionnaire on intake that asks them, you know, how often during the week do you have a regular meal? Are you going to a food bank for food? Are you looking, always thinking about food as part of your purchasing that makes you uncomfortable because you're not sure where it's going to come next time? And if that's the case, we were designing a way to kick over a referral plan that puts the information right in front of the provider to say, hey, they answered yes to some of these aspects. Give them a referral to the food bank, give them a referral to nutrition, give them a referral to the next steps to help break that cycle that they're dependent upon in, in terms of malnourishment. That's just so one aspect. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So from a practical standpoint, is that then, do you have some kind of third-party connector or how does the average, let's say, hospitalist that's going, okay, well, I've identified it here. They say they have some food insecurity. I would say the average hospitalist doesn't have time to run down the social worker and get a list of, the, you know, how have you guys made that an efficient process or have you yet? We've just started on that path this month. So we're building out those processes in the EMR to send a request to care management or the front desk nurse to follow up with them to say, hey, we understand you have this issue. We're happy to help you. Here's some information that you like. Also, we're able to connect texting within our EMR to the patient directly. So if there's a availability of the patient, give us their phone number. We're able to send them a text message. Say, Here's more information about discharge. This is about medications, but this is about food insecurity and what it means and how we can help you find that. We're also going out to the food banks to give us their processes, and we want to embed that back. So we're going to retrograde design the connection between clinical and food in the outpatient world. Do most of those third parties, the food banks and things, have the technical ability to do some of that? That's, that's great to hear. We give them the ability to connect to us, but just by telephone, et cetera, but knowing that we're going to send people to their location. Yeah. So now that they know I'm a patient from New Vans Health, welcome. Let's help you get what you need. And we'll give them a food script to say, here's the nutritional balance we want you to have. Go to the food bank and get that food that you need for you and your family or for the patient itself. Gosh, yeah, we probably have another, another podcast talking about that. I'm so, I'm thankful to hear the social determinant of health and how you guys are integrating that. Because so often we hear that talked about, it's the sexy new thing and we got to take care of social determinants of health, but then there's the practical, what does that mean? And you guys are putting that into play here. And then the second part of that is we have for so long as a primary care physician, so long ignored food as medicine, not just being adequately nourished, but using food as a tool for someone to get better and explaining the power that a patient has in their hands, you know, to eat the, the right things for whatever health or disease state they might have. You know, solutions like this come at a large effort by multiple people at the network. So it's not just ourselves as clinical pharmacists. We have 
Dr. Brenda Ayers with us as the medical director for health equity, but also we have registration and needs to bring the correct information to us. We have outreach leadership on the ground that helps us find those areas to give referrals to. So there's a lot of connectivity that has to take that patient from finding about them that their need, what their needs are to getting them the help that they do need, whether it be clinical or nutritional. Yeah, great point. Great point. It's a, it's a team for sure. Well, let me wrap up with asking you the final question. As far as health equity goes, what's one area, let's say you're a CIO or a CMIO at an organization that just really hasn't looked at this issue as an organization. Where should they look first when it comes to health equity? Or do you have any suggestions on how to get started? Frankly, it takes a network to embrace health equity. It starts at the top with our Dr. Murphy, who is the president and CEO of New Vance Health, and leadership to say, this is an important part of our outreach to patients. We want to embrace all patients as equal and care equally for them, regardless of their station in life. The following steps would be creating a division around health equity to allow the focus to be not just operationalized, but also financially supported. So that's a very important piece because you have a lot of marketing, you have a lot of EMR build, you have a lot of analysts, you have consulting, you have data analytics that has to go behind this. So it's it's a complete project. It's like almost like building a new EMR, but you're revolving around patient experience and health equity and inclusion. That's where we would start, have the operational leadership embrace it and move forward with it as part of an everyday understanding. Because it starts from the top and then it has to move outward and downward. Educational at every level, so at rounds, for the residents, at huddles, safety huddles for the nursing staff, everyday conversation, it comes up, how are we doing with health equity? And measure it, have a transparent dashboard that says, here's how we're doing across our network. Here's where we're lagging. Let's put a little more emphasis and focus on that. But if you don't measure it, you don't know how you're doing in health equity. But I would also bring in the end user as well. We have an LGBT patient, a PFAC, that works with us to help us understand what their needs are in the community and how to best elicit the interactions with those patients and bring them into our fold so we can care for them. Not just from a advertising or marketing campaign, but also from our electronic campaign, meaning an informatics campaign. We have ability to send a link so they can register as a new patient. How are we addressing health equities around those links? Are we being respectful of LGBT community or African-American community? or Asian community? Are we respectful as we present that data to them in that link that we're embracing all patients equally? And that's a very important piece. The image out front to the patient is an important part of success for any health equity implementation. Sounds like a, a culture shift. And those take lots of people and lots of effort. So I, I applaud the efforts that you guys have done there at New Vance. It's, it's wonderful to hear about and it's motivating, hopefully, for others to, to take the bull by the horns and work on this. So. Al, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us. I know you're busy, and I think hopefully folks can learn from this and we can see more of this spread across our country. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Gosh, I really love this show. I love hearing what workers and leaders on the front lines are doing, and we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. If you want to support This Week Health, the best way to do that is to let someone else know about our channels. Let them know you're listening to it and you are getting value. We have two channels, This Week Health Conference and This Week Health Newsroom. You can check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find them on our website, thisweekhealth.com, and you can subscribe there as well. 
We also want to thank our show partners, Meditech and Transparent, for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.